0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, filling in this week for Terry Gross. The most enduring images and sounds of Martin Luther King's life come from his I Have a Dream speech, delivered at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963. Our guest Clarence Jones helped draft the text King held that day, and he was standing a few feet away when King spoke. As he'll soon explain, the words I Have a Dream weren't originally part of the speech. Jones was a young attorney and part of King's inner circle when the March on Washington was planned. And he tells his story in a new book called Behind the Dream, the making of the speech that transformed a nation. Clarence Jones is currently a scholar in residence and visiting professor at Stanford University's Martin Luther King, Jr. Research and Education Institute. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. I spoke to him about Martin Luther King and his historic speech last week. I asked him to read from the beginning of the book.
1: A quarter of a million people, human beings who generally had spent their lives treated as something less, stood shoulder to shoulder across the vast lawn, their hearts beating as one. Hope on the line, when hope was an increasingly scarce resource. There is no dearth of prose describing the mass of humanity that made its way to the feet of the great emancipator that day. No metaphor that has slipped through the cracks waiting to be discovered, dusted off, and injected into the discourse a half-century on. The March on Washington has been compared to a tsunami, a shockwave, a wall, a living monument, a human mosaic, an outright miracle. It was all of those things, and if you saw it with your own eyes, it wasn't hard to write about. With that many people in one place crying out for something so elemental, you don't have to be Robert Frost to offer some profound eloquence. Still, I can say to those who know the event only as a steely black-and-white television image, it's a shame that the colors of that day, the blue sky, the vibrant green life, the golden sun everywhere, are not part of our national memory. There is something heart-wrenching about the widely shown images and film clips of the event that belies
0: the joy of the day. Well, Clarence Jones, welcome to Fresh Air. I thought we'd begin before we talk about the march. I want you to tell us how you and Martin Luther King met, how he got you involved in the movement.
1: Well, it was—I um, was a twenty-nine-year-old uh, uh, lawyer, just uh, just a graduate of uh, law school some seven months previous. After that, I just moved to uh, California, and I got a call in February of 1960 from uh, Judge Hubert Delaney, who was a uh, well-known lawyer and judge here in New York. And he said, Clarence, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., you know, the the preacher from Alabama has been indicted for tax evasion and uh, perjury, and I'm the head of the defense team. But he said, we need a law clerk. We need um, someone who can do all the legal research. But we need you to come to Montgomery, Alabama and work with us. And I said, Judge, I'd like to, but, uh, you know, I I just just got here and uh, I just can't do it. And I could tell that he was uh, disappointed with me and he he hung up the phone. The following morning, I get a call from Judge Eleni and he said, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time that we had our conversation last night, but Dr. King... He is—he's uh, on his way to California. He has a speaking engagement there on Saturday, and I have suggested to him that he stop by and see you. And so um, Friday evening, there's a knock on my door. Two gentlemen show up. One has a hat on, and he says, "Mr. Jones, I'm Martin King, and this is my colleague Reverend Bernard Lee, and so forth." So he comes in, and um, to put it in historical context he was then regarded as what, as a celebrity. At least, at least he was regarded as such by my wife, who thought that uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was coming to our home, there was a combination of Moses and Jesus, George Clooney, uh, Sidney Poitier <laughs> and whoever, Michael Jackson. So in he comes and he sits down. We have some pleasantries and so forth. And he gets right to the point. He says, you know, Mr. Jones, we have lots of white lawyers who help us in the movement. But what we need is that we need more young Negro professionals, more Negro lawyers who can help us, because every time we are embarked on something, we're being hit with some kind of legal action, and it's draining us. And I listened very attentively, and I said, Dr. King, I admire you and what you are seeking to do, but as I said to Judge Delaney, you know, it's just uh, really not possible for me at this time
0: yeah, but, but you know, when, as you describe this in the book, it, although you say you were respectful and you were, you know, admired what he was doing, it, as you describe it, it sort of sounds like you were a little bit disdainful. Like, you know, some, well, some uh, preacher. Well, by
1: my wife thought I was. That's why I was going to continue because yeah. she said as soon as he left, she turned to me and she said to me, "What are you doing? That's so important that you can't help this man." And so she was angry at me, and then I began to be angry at Martin King because I thought to myself, you know, like all young couples, you know, we were living in relative domestic tranquility and here this total stranger comes into my house (laughs) and gets my wife angry at me over something I had nothing to do with. So that was not a pleasant evening. And so um, the following uh, morning, however, telephone rings and uh, a woman on the phone says, Mr. Jones, I said, yes. She says, my name is Dora McDonald." I'm Dr. King's secretary. Dr. King enjoyed so much his visit with you and Mrs. Jones. But he forgot to extend to you an invitation to be his guest tomorrow. He's preaching in Los Angeles, and he would like for you to attend as his guest. So I listened, and I said, well, thank you very much. My wife was standing nearby, and I told her verbatim the conversation I just had with Dora McDonald, And here again, she said, well, you may not be going to Montgomery, Alabama, but you're going to that church. So I go to the church. Now, this is a church in Baldwin Hills. Now, at that time, Baldwin Hills was and still is, but maybe to a lesser extent now, since blacks can move into Bel Air and Brentwood and other places. But at that time, Baldwin Hills was the section neighborhood in Los Angeles where the black bourgeoisie... The uh, so called accomplished uh, black professionals live. So I go into the church. Dr. King is introduced, and he gets up uh, and he says, um, Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the text of my sermon today is the role and responsibility of the Negro professional to aid our less fortunate brothers and sisters who were struggling for freedom in the South. So I thought to myself, this is one smart dude. <laughs> this, is, this is actually, he's come right to the right church in the right pew. I had never heard anyone speak with such extraordinary eloquence and power. And then during the course of this very eloquent uh, description of what he was seeking to do through the Southern Christian Leisure Conference, he pauses and he says... And for example, there's a young man sitting in this church today. And he's not looking at me. He's just preaching. There's a young man sitting in this church today and my friends in New York, whom I have great respect, they tell me that this young man's brain has been touched by the Lord. They tell me that this young lawyer, that when he does legal research... He can go into the books and go all the way back to the time of William the Conqueror in 1066 and the Magna Carta. And then when he finds it and writes it down, my friends in New York, whom I have great respect for, tell me the words he writes are so compelling.
0: They just jump off the page. Did you know he was talking about you?
1: <laughs> no. So I have not the. I don't. He's not looking at me. I don't I think he's talking about me at all, and if it, it, it was, could not have been me because it was the most it would be an exaggerated description of me. So I actually I'm thinking, I want to meet this dude he's talking about. I want to connect up and you know see who this person. And then he goes on. He says, "But I had a chance to meet with this young man the other night, and he began to describe his coming to my home, and he described his meeting with me. He's not looking at me." And he then, in the course of telling that, he says, "But and this young man has forgotten from whence he came." And he says, "Like so many of you in this audience, in this church here today, somebody made it possible for you to be have a measure of success." And I, I get tearful. Sermon's over. Okay, uh, he, as I said, he's like a rock star. So he's standing at the, uh, on the on the steps of the entrance of the pulpit outside the church, and I walk over to him. And as I walk over to him, he looks at me like a Cheshire cat that swallowed a mouse. He, never, he says, I never mentioned your name, Mr. Jones. I never mentioned your name. And I walk over to him, and I put my hand in his hand, and I said, Dr. King, when do you want me to go to
0: Montgomery, Alabama? Since then, that transformed my life. <laughs> So if we fast forward then um, mm-hmm. a few years, it's 1963 and mm-hmm. you know the movement's rolling. You're at this point a, a, an attorney. You're working yes. with Martin Luther King, part of his inner circle traveling with him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they begin to plan this march on Washington for jobs and freedom, a kind of a mm-hmm. revival of an idea that A. Philip Randolph mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. come up in the 30s, as as you mentioned. That is correct. And um, you said King's life at that time was so frenetic that he needed a place to be a little more secluded so he could plan. So you gave him your house in Riverdale for that purpose. And one of the interesting things about your description is that you were having all of these conversations about how to build a crowd, how to build a coalition of people, of speakers, of interest. And the FBI was listening to all of it. Did you suspect that at the time?
1: No, we, we did not suspect it at that time. Every telephone conversation that took place from my home or my office where Martin Luther King Jr. was on the other end of the phone, was wiretapped. I didn't have any suspicion, but as, uh, as it began to be like in 64 and 65, I began to have some uh, suspicion. It was just a gut reaction. And uh, at that time, we would, our conference calls would frequently start around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I would have had maybe 2 or 3 martinis and maybe a little Jack Daniels before the <laughs> conference call. And I remember uh, just before we start the conference call, we'd get on the phone, and I would say, hold on, everybody. And I would say something like, no, Mr. FBI man, are you ready? Do you have your pencil and paper? No, I just want you to be sure you get this down accurately, because we have a lot to talk about. And Dr. King would say, all right, Clarence, you know, enough with the theatrics, you know, I mean— they got better things to do, he would say. They have better things to do. Well, I know that... Listening to our conversations, I said, yeah, yeah, Martin, but I'm sure they are.
0: <laughs> well, and you you later learned that Robert Kennedy him, himself, the attorney general at the time, had personally authorized the tap on your phone. That is correct. That uh, is correct. I, I'm wondering, would you have behaved differently? Would the conversations have been different if you'd known the FBI was listening? Um,
1: yes, I think we would have. We would have been – less forthcoming.
0: Now, now, as as you planned the march, um, Hmm. the plan was that the the march would end at the Capitol building and that uh, Martin Luther King and the other leaders would speak on the top steps of the Capitol. And as we all know, it ended up being at the Lincoln Memorial. Why was that? Well,
1: initially when it was um, the march, when the march was unfolding, the plans, it was planned to be on the steps of the Capitol building, but President Kennedy and the Attorney General, particularly the President, there was a pending civil rights bill in Congress, and he very strongly said that uh, it would be counterproductive that um, the Congress would regard uh, the demonstration at the Capitol steps as uh, as considering the civil rights bill with a gun pointed to its head, and so. We, when I say we, the the A. Philip Randolph, or the uh, Bayard Rustin, Dr. King, the other members of the several organizations, decided that yes, it would to to make that question a non-issue. We moved it to the foot of the
0: Lincoln Memorial. So there was enormous planning, building up to the March on Washington that August of 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 1963, and. There was the matter of Martin Luther King's speech. There were going to be a lot of speakers. He would speak last. Was there ever any question that, that Martin Luther King would be the final speaker or that, or that he would have more time than the others? Oh, absolutely.
1: There was a question of that. During the week preceding that, there was a behind-the-scenes discussion among the big six or their representatives about who was going to be the last speaker. A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rustin and Cleveland Robinson from Labor Leader myself, we felt, and Martin himself felt, that he should be the last speaker, but he felt, he certainly felt it was inappropriate for him to suggest that. And so um, I had a discussion with A. Philip Randolph and uh, Baird Rustin, joined with Cleveland Robinson, and I said, well, I think he should be the, the last speaker, I said, I believe that most people who are coming to this march, with all due respect to the other members of the big six organizations, they're really coming in anticipation of hearing Dr. King. There was some resistance. So finally, I remember saying, let's think about it. Do you really want to follow Martin Luther King Jr.? Do you really want to follow him? (laughs) Right. And there was this (laughs) dead silence. (laughs) And that was it.
0: (laughs) Um. You know, I know that at this point, I mean, you know, this was 1963, and the movement had right. had years of experience, and with the media, with local officials, with with tactics of you know protest, and and I know there was a lot of, of of savvy consideration of how it would be perceived and how the message would be generated. Were people thinking about television then? About how it would look on television?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, the the person among, among us who who gave us an education on the power of television was really Harry Belafonte. He said, you have to look at this as a media event, not just as a march. And so, for example, uh, Harry was uh, responsible for assembling what was called the Celebrity Delegation, a lot of uh, celebrities from Hollywood and performing artists. And he was very firm that they should sit in a certain strategic part on this uh, podium – because he knew that the television cameras would pan to them, would look to them, and so he wanted to be sure that they were strategically situated so that in looking at the uh, the celebrities, they'd also see a picture of the march and the other uh, performers. Yes, we were very much concerned about that. And then um, Martin King uh, was he was especially concerned about the uh, the white-black composition of the march. So we were hopeful that there would be, uh, oh, like a minimum of uh, 25 uh, to 30, uh, 30 to 35 percent or more of white people who would attend the march. In fact, uh, the uh, participation was somewhere between 20 and 25 percent maximum. And to that extent, he was um, disappointed.
0: So the day arrives, you wake up in the morning, you, Martin Luther King had stayed up, Um, working on his speech, and you write that you were relieved to see that it was finished and copies were being mimeographed for distribution to the media that would be assembled. And a concern occurred to you about whether it should be copyrighted. Tell us about that.
1: Well, when I learned that the speech was being uh, mimeographed, I actually got over to the press tent where all the media was assembled, and I saw them putting in this... uh, copy into brown envelopes, along with some a lot of press materials, folders about the march. And I cannot really say why why I did it. Something occurred to me uh, because I'd had the experience of so many people trying to rip off and take advantage and, of used material that had either been written or spoken by Martin. And so I said to myself, I'm going to put a little circle with a C in it on the mimeograph copies just to protect what is called the common law copyright without getting into a lot of discussion as a lot of people may not know is that anything anytime a person creates a a, a book or a writing is that you have what is called the common law copyright that's you you created it it's yours but that common law copyright if you distribute it over a wide audience if it's not a limited distribution you will extinguish your common law copyright. So putting a notice of the common law copyright was a way of protecting that. So that's, that's what I did.
0: And, and, and what's been the impact of your having copyrighted that speech?
1: Well, the impact of that, uh, you'd have to understand, after the march is over, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm in New York City, and I'm walking down the street, and I hear record stores playing a recording of the speech. So, I got back to my law office, and I checked the information in the record jack, and I finally reached the offices of 20th Century Fox Records. And I called them up and I said, uh, You know, you're putting out this record. And they said, Oh, yes, of course, the this, this speech is in the public domain. Anyone can. And I said, No, it's not in the public domain. We worked feverishly to uh, bring a, a, an action in federal court. And in the hearing in federal court, the decision was rendered that this speech was not in the public domain. And uh, little did I know that that single act of statutory copyright protection would protect one of the most invaluable pieces of intellectual property that the king estate currently has.
0: Yeah. How much has it been worth over the years? Any idea?
1: I have no idea, but it's been the principal source of revenue. I'm certain of that.
0: Let's go back to the day of the speech. Um, e- It's interesting that you tell us that the phrase, I have a dream, was not in the text that Martin Luther King took to the podium, uh, but it was an idea he had spoken of before, right? That is correct.
1: He had used that phrase, I have a dream, in other speeches, and specifically he had used in a speech he had given in June in Detroit, I think at a place called Cobalt Hall. Martin Luther King Jr. could speak in real time, and he could cut and paste from speeches or articles uh, or things that he had said before. So the speech, the so-called celebrated I Have a Dream speech, was an entirely spontaneous and extemporaneous speech. He was not speaking from written context except for the first nine paragraphs of, uh, of textual material which I had uh, contributed to, uh, uh, f- you know, for him to uh, use.
0: Right, which is which – After... yeah, if I can, I'm sorry to interrupt, which is really worth listening to and folks can hear the whole thing. But you described this incredible moment on stage at which you, you watch him decide to depart from the text and go on the I Have a Dream um, theme. Re- recreate that for
1: us. What happened – is that as he uh, as he is reading from the, uh, the paragraphs which he had written, incorporating some of the language and material which I and others had contributed? Mahalia Jackson, who was his favorite gospel singer, who had previously performed, she turns to him and she shouts to him, "Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream." And he acknowledges her and momentarily pauses. And he pushes the—I watch him push the text of the speech aside, grab the podium, lean back and look out at this 250,000 people or more assembled. And I lean to somebody standing next to me. I said, these people don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. <laughs> and that's when he started this extraordinary, extemporaneous peroration. And it was mesmerizing. It was— it was, it was something – as, I, as I, I think I use the word, it was like he had captured lightning in a bottle. I say that was Martin Luther King Jr. You, what you, you saw, you will never see again in a millennium.
0: You make the point in the book that, that you don't get the power of the words by reading them. You really have to hear them. So, so why don't we just listen to a bit of that improvised I Have a Dream speech? After all these years, does it still move you to hear that? Oh, it certainly does. It moves
1: me. Um, and, um, you know, as I, I – yes, the answer is yes. In fact, I, I, I in my uh, lectures and teaching at Stanford University, I say to students, the only speech uh, historically that I think
0: that uh, has a comparison is Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Did it feel at the time that you were experiencing something historic? After the speech I thought that that
1: I had witnessed and I participated in a transcendental moment. Actually I went up to him uh, uh, I saw several people did and pulled him on the shoulder and I said you know, listening to you was like listening to Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and and some of the great uh, artists. He He had this ability to improvise. It was it was something so extraordinary that you had to see it and hear it to
0: appreciate it and believe it. We're speaking with Clarence B. Jones. He has written the book with Stuart Connolly, Behind the Dream, The Making of the Speech That Transformed a Nation. Y- you know, you mention in the book that in a meeting— I- I believe I'm remembering this correctly, with Robert Kennedy in June of 1963, mm-hmm. that he asserted that because of the you know progress that he and his brother and others were making in the area of civil rights, that in 40 years, uh, a Negro could become president. Um, did you ever think you'd see an African-American president in your lifetime?
1: No, I did not. And I think you're referring to a, um, a meeting that Robert Kennedy, I think when he made that uh, Statement it was during a course of his meeting with James Baldwin, Lino Horn, okay. Funny, Ring Tones. No, the answer to your question, no, I did not uh, believe believe it would happen.
0: L- last summer, Glenn Beck, the, the the you know cable talk show host, held a Restore America's Honor rally at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, hearkening back to the, the uh, you know, the March in nineteen sixty three and Martin Luther King's speech, and 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 many people were very critical. Al Sharpton accused him of hijacking a movement that had changed America, you see it differently, right?
1: I see it differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way I see it is that uh, the rally that Glenn Beck uh, held, first of all, you have to just, it it was an extraordinary acknowledgement of the power of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, he, he was seeking to make his rally relevant Because of what took place on August 28, 1963, Uh, there will always be efforts from persons um, who differ with what Martin King stood for, from those persons to appropriate uh, him for their own purposes. This is one of the reasons that prompted me to write an earlier book called What Would Martin Say? Because I got sick and tired of having people pimp Martin King's legacy for their own personal political purposes and i watched the glenbeck rally from beginning to end and i thought that while i disagreed with some of the ways in which he interpreted the prior rally of martin king at the at the same place nevertheless he did give due deference and acknowledgement to the contribution
0: of martin luther king jr on that date and at that place i have to note that at the end of the book you you take some stock of how far America has come since 1963, and you talk about the importance of of redressing some of the economic inequalities that are the legacy of slavery and discrimination. This is a big question, but where are we on race in America today?
1: You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to recognize that extraordinary progress has been made. But still... Even with an African-American president, the question of race or race relations still remains what I call the 800-pound gorilla in the living room of all American households. It's still something that haunts us, that makes us uncomfortable. And I think that is largely because there's never been a sufficient reconciliation after slavery Of the American psyche, the American institutions. Yes, there's been an apology for slavery, but the question is that institution which was so searing and so extraordinarily deep in our national fiber that we are still suffering from the consequences of that. Uh, The principal issue today Uh, is one not just for African-Americans, but really the income inequality. And then for the African-American community, I mean, uh, if Martin were alive today, I mean, he would be appalled, as I am, and I'm sure many other people of goodwill who are concerned about the progress of African-Americans. I mean, how can you not be concerned when you see the wanton violence that takes place, principally gun violence, the high incidence of out of uh, wedlock children in the African-American community? the uh, 45% or more incidence of uh, HIV virus. There are things which are occurring occurring in the African-American community where African-American leaders have to be very candid and comfortable enough to say, hey, these things are not because of what, quote, the white man did to us. It's because of what we are doing to ourselves or what we are failing to take advantage of. So even with the extraordinary achievement of an African-American president, yes, the glass is half full, but we still have a way to go to fill
0: the glass up to the top. Well, Clarence Jones, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Clarence Jones is a scholar-in-residence and visiting professor at Stanford University's Martin Luther King, Jr. Research and Education Institute. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. His new book is called Behind the Dream, the making of the speech that transformed a nation. Coming up, writer Hampton sides on the events leading up to King's assassination in 1968. This is Fresh Air.